Lord. As we get started in whatever venue you do find yourself in, would you raise your hand if you were born in western Pennsylvania? All right. How many of you were born in Beaver County? Okay. How many of you were born more than 200 miles from here? All right, so lots of you. Some of you had your hands up for all three. Uh, That's not possible, all right? How many of you were born in another country, like West Virginia? (laughs) Okay, well, the reason that I bring that up, a lot of different people from a lot of different places today, that's great. I I bring that up because there are differences between us just based on where it is that we're from. And sometimes we see that in the most simple of ways. For instance, if you, what would you call it if you were to gather up all of the junk from inside your house and put it outside on a Saturday morning and sell it to your neighbors? What would you call that? Garage sale. Yeah, around here we typically call that a garage sale. If you were from further south, you'd call that a yard sale. If you were from the upper Midwest, you'd probably call it a rummage sale. Of course, it all should be just called a rubbish sale because that, that's really what it is. But... Uh, You're not going to put that sign out in front of your driveway, right? So what would you call that thing that comes in those bottles and cans, carbonated beverage, sometimes a two-liter bottle? What would you call that? Okay, Okay, there you go. There you have it. There was actually a study done by somebody who needed a life in Pennsylvania among people, Pennsylvanians, on what we call that. 52% of people in Pennsylvania call it soda. 45% of people call it pop. Now, if you're from the South, you would just call it Coke in a generic sort of way. In fact, you might go in a restaurant and say, I'd like a Coke, and they'd say, okay, what kind would you like? We've got root beer, we've got Mountain Dew, we've got Sprite. I'm not making that up. It's, It's just that there are differences between us based on where it is that we are from. There's a world of difference between what we might call something based on what we're from. Also today, what we're going to see is that there's also a world of difference that exists between what we might call ourself when we think of who we are spiritually and exactly what direction that we are going. Because we're going to take a look today at a couple of different options that our author gives to us in the passage that we're studying where there is a world of difference between the options that we can choose. Two basic options, a world of difference. We're going to dig into that. We are in this continuing series that we're calling The Real Thing, and uh, this is the passage that uh, you can find um, this section that we're going to be in today. It's 1 John chapter 2. I invite you to go ahead and open up your Bible, if you would, please, to that spot. You might also want to grab the outline that's available for you there. The real thing is what we're talking about. John, our author, wants us to experience that. He wants us not to get trapped by the ways that would lead us astray into becoming something that is other than what God would have for us, but that we would follow after exactly what it is that God has in store for us. That's what we're calling the real thing. And it's what he continues, just passage after passage after passage, of leading us toward. And that's what we're going to be considering here today. In this passage, we are going to find John, the author of our letter, very concerned about the influences that the people to whom he is writing are facing. I mean, could you imagine living in a world where immoral and illegal sexual practices were the rule of the day, where they're being flaunted, where they're being celebrated? Could you imagine living in a world where the pursuit of money was so great that people would cut corners on what was ethical in order to get it? Could you imagine living in a world where power and position trumped character and integrity? Could you imagine living in a world where humility was seen as a weakness and self-promotion was seen as the way you should go to get ahead? Can you imagine living in such a world? 
Of course you can, because you do. The parallels between what we see in 1 John and the world that they were living in at that time and that we live in our world today are very, very much the same. It was tough going in the first century when our letter was written, and it's tough going today as well. If there was something that could give you advice for, the how, for how to live in the midst of that sort of context and not get trapped in it, but be able to overcome it, would you be interested in knowing what that is? I certainly would because, because we face that day in and day out, and I feel the bombardment of that sort of a worldview and world system coming against me all the time. And to have something that would help me to understand what it is that is coming and know how it is that I could rise up over it would be something that would be very, very valuable. And the good news, of course, is that we have just that in this passage that we are going to be looking at today. And in fact, the whole of this letter of 1 John, but specifically in what we're going to be considering today. And John frames what he has to say is a choice that we need to make between two different options. It's that simple. Two different options. One of them is the ways of God, the other, the ways of the world. And he's saying it's one or the other. There's no middle ground. There's no neutral. There's no kind of walking the fence on this one. You're either pursuing the ways of God and you're actively going in that direction or you're going to be slipping away from where that would be into the pull of what the world is around us. It's our bottom line for today that I want to be sure that we see and walk away with, that you can love the Lord by design or the world by default. It's one or the other. It can't be in the middle. You're either actively going after God or you're naturally falling away from Him, one or the other. Now, we're going to take a look at how John fleshes this out as we go. And interestingly enough, it's, it's sort of a good news, bad news passage. And he starts with the good news. And what he wants for us and from us in this is that we would lean on the truths about you, that you would lean on the truths about you. That's for your outline there. First few verses here I find to be very, very encouraging if you're a believer in Jesus Christ because he comes out and just tells us some things that are true about us. Now, in your translation, it probably lists this in a stanza form instead of a standard paragraph form because he's quoting creed-like statements that were repeated oftentimes in the church in that time. Of course, we have things that we hear repeated around us all the time also, even here at church. One of the things I've been hearing repeated recently is, how long until the lobby looks better than it does now at Chippewa? Right? Yeah, it is kind of torn apart while we're in this renovation phase. But I've got good news for you, and the good news is that we've been promised that the renovations will all be done before the Pirates are mathematically eliminated from the playoffs. So depending on how pessimistic or optimistic you are that could be anywhere from like labor day all the way back to memorial day just about some years it seems personally i'm more optimistic or pessimistic whichever way it goes but i uh, fall i think is when we're finally going to have the completion of all of that so there are a lot of statements that get repeated in church and the ones that john are talking about here the ones he's talking about are much more spiritual in nature and in these first three verses of our passage 12 13 and 14 of chapter 2 we're going to find him addressing three different groups of people 
and each of them twice. What I want to do is just read these verses just straight through for you, then we'll go back and pick them up. But I think there's something to be heard as we just kind of read our way through. See if you can pick up on the different groups that we find here. Verse 12, chapter 2, 1 John, here we go. I am writing to you, little children, because your sins are forgiven for his name's sake. I am writing to you, fathers, because you know him who is from the beginning. I am writing to you, young men, because you have overcome the evil one. I write to you, children, because you know the Father. I write to you, fathers, because you know him who is from the beginning. I write to you, young men, because you are strong and the word of God abides in you and you have overcome the evil one. So notice, first of all, that the first group that he addresses are the little children. And we've seen this before, and since he's also talking about young men and talking about fathers, we might be tempted to think, well, he's talking, and when he says little children, he must be talking about kids, little ones, like those who inhabit our new children's building on the Chippewa campus on Sundays and, and also inhabit the classrooms and the, the playland, which is getting fantastic use, by the way. It's being used all week long, and it's just awesome to see the connections and the conversations that are happening between parents and grandparents and and some are pathway people and some aren't pathway people and it's just accomplishing the things that we sort of set out to do and I'm very very encouraged by all of that but those aren't the people that John has in mind He's not talking about little kids. We've seen before in this book already, this letter, that he refers to little children, and when he does so, he's talking about all the believers, because he's an older man in the faith now, and he's got all of these sort of spiritual followers, and he refers to them as his little kids, his, his little children. We're going to see that same title several more times yet in this letter, and each time, in the context, you can tell he's talking about all believers, and so that's who's being addressed here also. So if that's the case, what is he saying about them? First piece comes in verse 12. It says, I am writing to you, little children, because your sins are forgiven for his name's sake. The end of verse 13, he picks up the same group. I write to you, children, because you know the Father. A couple of awesome truths if you're a believer in Jesus Christ. He says, you know the Father. There were false teachers in those days who were suggesting that, that, Jesus was di- or that God was distant, that the Father was far away, that he was uncaring, that he was disconnected from the lives of people, which, of course, John pointed out in the very first opening verses of this letter that that is not true. In fact, that's why he came, so that he might be able to reveal the Father, reveal the love and the care and the compassion that God has. You know the Father if you're a believer in Christ is what it is that he's saying. That's the first piece, which is just awesome. And the other truth he gives little children is that their sins are forgiven. I don't know what the weight of sin was that you brought in with you today when you came, if you brought some. And for many of us, I'm sure that that very much was the case. I don't know what the burden of that is in your life, but what I do know, what the promise of this text is, is that you don't need to walk out with what you walked in with that you can leave it right here, then it can be taken care of, that it can be forgiven. Believers are forgiven sorts of people. But there are times when we allow sin to sort of creep in. But there's a way free from that, and he's pointed that out to us already in this letter. In fact, it's one of the best-known verses in all of the Bible. It's 1 John chapter 1, verse 9, which says, if we confess our sin, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. That is good news. But don't just leave that as some sort of a theological truth here today. All right, we know that's true. We know that Jesus died. We know all of that. Don't just leave it sort of on that theoretical or theological level for your life. What is your sin? 
What is your sin? Why not be free from it right now? See, this is one of the things that troubles me so much is that there are some who are listening right now who would say if they were bold enough, you know what, I'm just going to hold on to my sin. I know that there is forgiveness available, but I'm just going to hold on because I'm still enjoying it too much. Because I still want to pursue it because it's still my primary interest in this particular realm instead of getting rid of it. And then one day, yeah, one day I'll ask for forgiveness for it. And God will forgive me then, right? And the answer is, if you're sincere in that moment, then yes, he will forgive you. But there's some things we need to understand if that's the sort of cavalier attitude we have when we consider our sin. And one of those things is we're not completely sure that we're going to have the opportunity to do so just given the uncertainty of life and the way that it comes. Also, another important piece that we need to be sure to keep in mind is that if you're not inclined to seek God's forgiveness now, there's no reason to say that you're going to definitely be inclined to seek it some later time. If that was for sure going to be in your heart, that for sure would be in your heart. Beyond that, if we're just saying, I'm going to go ahead and live with my sin, you're snubbing your nose at God. You're laughing at his sacrifice on the cross because you're saying, you came, Jesus, because you thought you needed to die for my sin. I'd rather have my sin. Imagine what that is saying about the nature of your heart. And even will there ever be a time when you're going to choose to want to Find that forgiveness. The best way forward is right now is it's sort of in your mind as we think about this is that we would turn over that page and we would just commit ourselves to the forgiveness which God provides and offers. That we'd lean on the truths about us. Which is what John wants to be sure we understand. He says, you know the Father. He says forgiveness is yours. Then he goes on to the next group he addresses here at the beginning of verse 13. He writes, I am writing to you fathers because you know him who is from the beginning. He says more at the beginning of verse 14. I write to you fathers because you know him who is from the beginning. He says the exact same thing twice. Now when I say the same thing twice, it's usually because I got confused and messed up. Now when I say the same thing twice, it's usually because I got confused and messed up. But John doesn't have that problem. He's repeating himself for a reason, and that's just because he wants us to be sure that we get it, that nobody misses the point. And before we look at the point, who are the fathers that are in view here? He's not just talking about men who have children. That's not what he's saying. He's talking about mature believers in Jesus Christ. That's the group that he is referring to here, and what about them? These are people, he says, who know Jesus from the beginning, who knew, knew Jesus was from the beginning. These are people who have theological understanding. They have maturity to their faith. They know about God as being the Trinity, God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. They've moved on in their faith, and they understand these things. And I'm so thankful that we have so many, many people who are just like that, at Pathway Church. So many people who are mature in their faith and we have benefited from them again and again and again as they have applied their wisdom to where we are and where it is that we need to go and have influenced who we are and where it is that we're headed for the future. I'm so thankful for them. Now, they aren't always older people, physically speaking, though typically that is the case. And where you find that to be the case, what I would ask of you is that you would not dismiss them. The fact of the matter is, 
in our culture, there is a youth movement. We celebrate the young. And there's nothing wrong with celebrating the young as long as in it we're not dismissing those who are more mature age-wise and also more mature spiritually. There's so much that they still have to teach and we must not just set them aside while we move forward in other realms. It wasn't very long ago at all that I was sitting with one of our shut-ins who was telling me more and more of the stories of his life and the way that he had sought to serve the Lord and the way that he had seen the Lord sort of bail him out of circumstances and lead him to risk and to endeavor to do great things on behalf of the Lord. And I just sat there inspired listening to those stories, more inspired in my own faith to be faithful and to press on and to to finish strong. We've got a number of people who are still in positions of leadership who have that sort of father maturity that are leading us forward, and we we rely on that leadership and that wisdom, and we should. Find another group that John mentions at the end of verse 13. He writes, I am writing to you, young men, because you have overcome the evil one. He adds in the second half of verse 14, I write to you, young men, because you are strong and the word of God abides in you and you have overcome the evil one. The picture here is of a believer who is full of vitality and ready to take any hill for the sake of the Lord and meet any challenge and they haven't lost that first love that they came to the Lord with and it's inspiring. And the church needs those people. They have helped us to rise up and make advances for the sake of the kingdom of God. And if you see yourself in that category, then I just want to urge you. I want to plead with you that you would take and that you would apply what it is that you have in that vitality to the work of the ministry. See, what I sometimes hear somebody say is that, well, the person who is in this category, I'm so busy in life. I'm so busy building my career. I'm so busy with my family. There will come a time when I am going to be able to be free from some of those pressures that I'll be able then to go ahead and engage in the work of the ministry, engage in service for Christ. But what we need to understand from what John is saying here is that, yes, you can serve in that context, but there is something uniquely that you can bring to the table today that you won't be bringing in that day. There's a point of view. There's a perspective. There's a risk factor. There's a willingness to go charge any hill, regardless of how ridiculous it looks to get up that hill, that you're not going to have at some later point. And so if you are that young man, that young woman, that you would be willing to engage instead of to step back because your service in the future, while important it might be, will not be the same as the contribution that you can make today. So don't just push it off. Young men, young women, go for it. He's calling us toward that end. And in addition to being strong and ready to go after it, John says that they have also overcome the evil one. He says it twice. The evil one is Satan, and and what a word of encouragement that this is, that they have overcome Satan. But don't get the idea that the reason that he says to this group that they've overcome Satan is because they're so spiritually vital that it's their vitality that has gotten them over the hump of overcoming Satan. It's not that at all. There's only one reason that they overcome Satan, and it's because they have the power of the Lord at work within them. Because left to ourselves, we would not have the power to overcome. We would shrink back. We would fall down. In fact, Isaiah points that out to us. says this, Even youths shall faint and be weary, and young men 
shall fall exhausted. But they who wait for the Lord, they who find their strength in the Lord, shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings like eagles. They shall run and not be weary. They shall walk and not faint. It's the power of the Lord that makes all the difference. Now, you might be saying, I'm in that category but the fact of the matter is, I don't feel all that strong, Pastor. I don't always feel like I'm overcoming. And I get that, because we're still in the battle. The battle won't, won't be won until Christ comes ultimately to defeat the power of Satan one day. But even though there is still a battle to be fought, the weapons that are needed to find victory in that battle are already yours They've already been provided because of the work of Jesus Christ on your behalf and on the cross. So it's time to claim that victory and use the weapons that Jesus has given to us to overcome. John's readers would have found confidence in those truths, and it would have strengthened them for facing the challenges that were ahead of them, and that's because confidence diminishes vulnerability. Confidence diminishes vulnerability. As they considered what was true about them, they wouldn't have been as susceptible to falling into the traps that came their way. And it's the same way with you. When you find confidence in the relationship that you have with God, when you walk in that on a daily basis, when you find your connection to God, you are not as susceptible to the arrows that fly at you from the evil one or from the world as it's spoken of here in this context. But if you're just walking your way through life kind of getting where you can get, kind of coasting a little bit, kind of not leaning into the truths about you, which is what he's telling us about here. You're going to be susceptible. You're going to be vulnerable. You will not feel strong. And when those, those arrows come at you, when that battle comes against you, when the world comes at you, you're going to shrink back. You can love the Lord by design or the world by default. And you know that that's true because you've seen it. You've lived it. You've experienced it. So lean on the truths about them. Let them encourage you. Let them inspire you. Go after them. If you don't, other voices are going to have their way with you. Place John tells us to begin is to lean on the truths about you. And then next is to fend off the traps around you. John comes right out with it as the text goes on here. Verse 15, look at it. Do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. Now here John is using world in a very different way than he does in his gospel when he says, for God so loved the world. There he's talking about humankind, humanity, mankind. Here he's talking about the realm of Satan's influence and those things that are opposed to the word and the will of God. And when he tells us not to love it, he means don't pursue that. Don't go after that. Don't find your pleasure in those things, which is something that's easier said than done sometimes, right? Because the fact of the matter is there are pleasures out there. There are pleasures that we are tempted to go after. There are pleasures that we are tempted to pursue. That's what makes them enticing. Satan is very crafty, and he is seeking your demise. He wants to do anything that he can and everything that he can to turn you and your heart from God into other ways. And so he uses that craftiness to come and find you where you are, maybe moving towards some pleasure that is completely appropriate, something that is 
honorable, no problem with that, but he goes and he helps you to move in that direction and then just sort of gives you a push while you're going that direction that would veer you a little bit off course and then a little bit more off course so that ultimately you would get to a place where you are trapped in sin. I kind of think of this like ice cream. Now, this is a little bit lighthearted probably for the significance of, of this point that we're making, but I think you'll see the parallel. When Carolyn serves ice cream at home, she will take a scoop and she'll put that single scoop into a dish that just holds it nicely, which is probably the best way to do it because you get a taste of it, barely, and, but you don't overdo it, right? When I was growing up, we put our ice cream in cereal bowls. You get like three or four scoops in there, right? And many of you did the same thing, but you probably ate more than you needed to eat. But the way I'd really love to eat ice cream, if I just get into it, is with a spoon in the open half gallon, right? That, and I'm, I probably have some fellow compatriots here who would very much love to do that same thing. Well, this is what Satan is trying to do with us. Again, in a much more significant and serious way, he wants you to go after the whole half gallon. He wants you to take something which is good to go ahead and pursue, nothing wrong with it whatsoever, and then he pushes you off course. And he does so subtly so that you don't really necessarily see that it's happening until you're caught there. If he just came at you and said, I know that you're on your way to righteousness, I'm going to stop right there and turn around and go towards sin. You'd recognize that. You wouldn't fall into that trap. But here we do because he's subtle and he's crafty and he is working toward your demise. And those inappropriate things that he leads us to veer off toward are what John calls the things of the world. And he goes on to give us a glimpse of what some of those things are in verse 16. For all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh and the desires of the eyes and the pride of life is not from the Father, but is from the world. Probably don't need to give you a lot of explanation on what qualifies in the category of the, the desires of the flesh and the desires of the eyes and the, the pride of life. You can probably figure that out. Our world is fascinated with those things and we're told to pursue them. And more and more we're being told that if we don't pursue them, that we're weird, that we're out of step, that we're out of touch. Did you think that you would get to the place in our world where the people who are facing ridicule are the ones who are pursuing purity and righteousness? Well, that's where we are. In many realms, that's where we are made to feel like we're the ones who are out of step if we're pursuing what it is that is the real thing that God would have us to go after. You see that in your workplace. You feel that in the way that you hear people talk on, on programs and shows and read things in magazines and online and blogs. And it just makes you feel like you're just a little bit out of step. And that's what he wants for us, what Satan wants for us. The Bible warns those, though, who are influencing standards away from Christ with words like these. Woe to those who call evil good and good evil, who put darkness for light and light for darkness. And understand, when we pursue that which is immoral, when we just go after the desires of our eyes and the desires of our flesh, when we look at those things that we ought not look at, regardless of where we find them online or what have you, when we go after things that demonstrate that there is no humility in us, that there is pride, and we're going after things to, to fill ourselves up so that we might demonstrate to other people just how much we have. When we do those things, understand, we are the ones who are calling evil good 
and good evil. It's not that nasty world out there that is influencing me and shame on them. They are bad people to come at me like that. No, it's, it's we're the ones who are saying evil is good. How can that be? It can be because the weapons that we need to fight this battle are already ours. And in order for us to go after those things, we are setting aside what it is that God has given to us to help us to overcome. We are the ones who have the culpability. We are the ones who have the opportunity to overcome. We need to lean into that. We need to fend off those attacks that come against us. John goes on to speak of the foolishness and short-sightedness of it all in verse 17. And the world is passing away along with its desires, but whoever does the will of God abides forever. The question here is what are you trading your life for? See, your life is currency. And we're all given just so much of it at the beginning of a day, and every day we get more. And every day we take that currency, which is ours, and we apply it into our world, into where we go and what we say and who we interact with and and what we do. And in exchange for that currency that we're giving out, there is something that's coming back toward us. What are you trading your life for? What is what you're putting yourself, your currency into? What is that accomplishing for you? I've spent far too much time in far too many ways over the years pursuing things that don't matter, that are just a waste, that are going to have no benefit for all of eternity, no benefit for the future because they weren't building anything in me. They weren't building anything in anybody else. Maybe you've been there too, but my purpose today isn't to try to beat you up For the way that you've wasted your life up to this point, no, that's not it. We're all where we are, and we have moments and opportunities and more currency being dumped and poured into our lives from this moment forward. The question is, what are you going to do with it now? How are you going to move yourself forward now? This is so very important. In fact, I think this is so very helpful just to think as you, as you go through the day, as you entertain what it is that you're going to do, that you would understand that as currency that you've been given and ask yourself, is what I'm about to do, is where I'm going, is how I'm investing myself, is this something that is going to create a return that is going to last, something that would honor God, or is the return here going to be something that's just going to get burned up and that is really just a waste. You've got to be intentional. That's what we're saying today. You can love the Lord by design or the world by default. Where would you say you are in that regard? John comes at us and he helps us to know that we can overcome. In fact, I love this verse that we're coming to, we'll come to in, when we get to chapter 4, but let me give it to you here also because it just applies right into this situation. Little children, you are from God and have overcome them. He's talking about the spiritual forces, the negative spiritual forces, evil spiritual forces that come against us, but you have overcome them for he who is in you is greater than he who is in the world. Amen? Amen. That's the truth that we can cling to. And John brings it right out for us so that we would not get 
trapped. Friends, what are you doing with your life? How are you investing it? Have you been kind of coasting a little bit more than you should? Just kind of taking things as they come, kind of riding the fence. Yeah, you, you love Jesus, and yeah, you want to follow him, but are you really pressing in and going after it with everything that you are? There are times you're just kind of coasting, kind of allowing things to blow you here and there. Can I love the Lord by design? Or the world by default? That's the bottom line. Make sure you don't miss that as we make our way out. There's a world of difference between these two worlds that John describes for us. In which one are you going to make your investment? Pray with me. Heavenly Father, it's very convicting because there's been far too much time spent in either actively pursuing that which is against you or just kind of coasting, getting sucked in to what John calls the world and its ways and its evil system and, and Satan's realm. And we've allowed ourselves to go there. Father, I pray from this moment forward, it's, it's no more. We put the stake in the ground. We say from this moment forward, I'm living by intentionality in the direction of Christ. I'm going to love the Lord by design, not the world by default. Well, that's going to take incredible intentionality. It's going to take determination. It's going to take clear-mindedness on our part that we would recognize the things that come against us, call them what they are, and stand up and live in the direction that you would have us to live. Lord, we want to be those people. We want to be the real thing. And the real thing in following after you is going wholeheartedly toward all you have in store. Lord, thank you for the fact that we have all of the weapons that we need to win in this battle. Thank you that we belong to the Father, that forgiveness is ours, that we have a spiritual vitality, that we have those we can look to and turn to and glean from who are our spiritual fathers and mothers in the faith. Lord, I pray that we would take to heart what it is that John brings us here today. And then we'd go after it with all that we have for your glory and for the sake of Christ, in whose name we pray, amen.